0: Well, good morning, everyone. One of the things that I love about the gospel message is how the gospel changes the world by changing those who believe in that message. Now, I know that seems pretty obvious and straightforward, but but that's easy to forget when so often the metrics of how we gauge the growth of the gospel is often confused with things that are not necessarily things that we should associate with the gospel at its core. So, for example, we might associate gospel growth with things that are are good, but not necessarily core evidence that it is the gospel growing. Let me give you some examples of that. We might think gospel is growing because there are never been so many large churches all over the United States or throughout the world, the rise of the megachurch it's been called. Or we might think that the gospel is growing because Christians are are having a political influence now that they haven't, haven't had before, and so we think the gospel must be growing. Or we think the gospel is growing because of a movement like evangelicalism is larger than it has ever been. Now certainly, when the gospel is proclaimed and people respond to that message, and if that happens enough times, a church is planted from that, just like this one was 47 years ago, rinse and repeat, that happens a lot, and that if that happens enough times, an entire city, an entire country, an entire culture can get shaped by the gospel all the way from a grassroots movement to maybe all the way up to the highest positions of power in that culture. So we see this has happened historically like uh, Uh, The the end of the gladiatorial games in Rome in 404 A.D. because of the influence of the Christian church. Uh, The abolition of the slave trade in England during the 1800s because of the Christian church. In the late 1950s here in the United States, the fight against racial segregation under the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. That was the banner of Martin Luther King Jr.'s organization. Now, if you're familiar with any of his writings, um, probably the most famous one, "Letter from a Birmingham Jail." Ironically enough, uh, uh, Luther uh, Martin Luther King Jr. stated that he wanted individuals in the organization, the SCLC, and Americans all over, to be like the early Christians who had such an influence from their growth in early Rome that they put an evil or put an end to the evils like infanticide and the gladiatorial games. So we see that the gospel does make changes, but we don't necessarily want to forget or confuse real gospel growth with just things you can measure on a spreadsheet, or you gauge from politics, or more churches popping up. Because if we're going to be honest, not every church has been healthy, and not every church has been a blessing to its community, and not all political influence has been stewarded wisely or well. So when we think about the growth of the gospel, we don't want to confuse it with things that can be measured on spreadsheets or political positions of that nature. So when we want to look at gospel growth, what should we be looking at so that we can in fact be grateful for it? And that's one of the reasons Philippians is a good book for us, particularly our section this morning, Philippians chapter 1, we're really going to zero in on verses 3 through eleven. Because here we see Paul the Apostle grateful to God for the growth of the gospel. And as we read Paul's writings, his gratitude is coming from the fact that these Philippians have partnered with him in his ministry. We see that in verses 3 through 8, and then verses 9 through 11, how Paul continues to pray for this kind of partnership. So when we look at our text this morning, we see gospel growth in particular in the partnerships we have with our lives and in the prayers that we make. So we'll look at them one at a time, our two points being gospel growth as seen in our partnerships and gospel growth as seen in our prayers. Let's look at the first one. Now, You see, in the very first six verses, our time is taken up by Paul's gratitude for the Philippians and their partnership with him, and the impact that it's had on both his life and their lives as well. That word partnership in verse five, there, you see where he says, Because of your partnership in the gospel. Now, If that word sounds a little too cold or sterile to you, seems a little too professional, um, don't worry. It's really another translation of a word that's common to us called fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia that we typically translate as fellowship here. The translators of the ESV decided to translate it as partnership, not to downplay Paul's affection for the Philippians, I mean, nothing would be clear of his affection for them as in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, For God is my witness how I yearn with you all with the affection of Christ. No, it's not because he, they're downplaying his affection, but they're trying to show the strength of the bond that they share. I appreciate this move. In that term, if you've been a Christian long enough, you've been in churches, you've heard fellowship, right? You, you hear people say that, hey man, let's fellowship. Hey, let's fellowship. We had good fellowship. And what that word should always mean, koinonia, means things in common. We get derivative terms like uh, coin, commune, community from that. It means having some common bond in something of profound. But sometimes words by their usage lose their profundity, and I think fellowship's one of them, Right? And so oftentimes fellowship in Christian circles can mean, it can mean profound unity over the gospel, but a lot of times it means going to see a movie and getting some coffee and talking about Bible-themed topics or something like that. So the translators deliberately translated a different nuance to bring out partnership. You see that? Because what was being pictured at Philippi wasn't just good old Christian fellowship. There was partnership. Furthermore, sometimes fellowship can be seen as an end in and of itself in our churches, can it? As if that were the sum total of what we were about, we want to have good fellowship. But that's not the idea here. So they use partnership. Because partnership evokes the idea of of some kind of contribution that's being made. Partnership evokes the idea of an investment of some sort. Partnership evokes the idea of a goal. We are partnering together for something. And so the question we have to ask is, what were they partnered for? What was their partnership about We can see very clearly in these first few verses, it was a partnership that was founded, focused upon, and fueled by the gospel. Notice what Paul says in verse 5, right at the very beginning because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The first day? Keep in mind, as we learned two weeks ago, Paul is writing 20 years after he founded the church. 20 years have passed since the events that we looked at in Acts chapter 16, and Paul says, from the first day. you imagine with me if Lydia, the, the wealthy merchant woman, she hears from the first day. She's thinking back to Acts chapter 16, verse 14, and that day down by the river when she heard Paul preach the gospel, and her eyes were opened. Imagine the Young slave girl, now 20 years older, who's remembering back in Acts chapter 16, verse 18, the first day when she was set free by the gospel. Maybe the older centurion, more wizened in his years, he hears the first day, and he's thinking back to that fateful night in prison, Acts chapter 16, verse 30, when the earthquake happened, and he was about to take his life, and he heard the gospel message of mercy, and he and his whole household became believers. From the first day until now, 20 years have passed, but it's not just these three, it's not just Lydia, it's not just the slave girl, it's not just the Roman centurion, it's all the church at Philippi, every one of them from the first day until now. Look at Paul's language in verses 3 and 4. I'm thankful for you all in all my prayers, verse 4, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because you all are partakers. Did you notice when Jenny was reading, how many times the word all showed up in these 11 verses? All, everywhere. It's not just, friends, the mission committee that's interested here in the gospel. It's not just the evangelism team. It's not just the elders. It's not just the staff at the church. Paul is saying, all of you are getting after the gospel. And his mind is blown. Look at just verses 3 and 4. All the, the, the piling on of these adjectives and adverbs. Always, every, all, with all joy. Philippians, you are getting after it. This is not just simply fellowship. It's a partnership. A partnership in things that are so much bigger than themselves. (laughs) Oh, to be about something bigger than your next iPhone. To be about something bigger than the next promotion you're looking for at the office. To be about something bigger than your next weekend getaway, the next time you can see the grandkids. Friends, are you living for things bigger than your own lives? Are you living for things bigger than yourself? In a world where everyone's life looks as fulfilling and fabulous on social media, these Philippians were living that kind of life, even if they didn't have a hashtag to prove it, because they were living for things that mattered. One of the most famous psychologists a couple decades ago, Rollo May, famous for this quote, said Americans all over are living their lives off of scraps of meaning. The Philippians were not living on scraps of meaning. They were partnered together for the eternal work of the gospel that rescues and redeems humanity. And because not just one or two of them, not just a few of them, not just the missions committee, not just a select group, but because they were all involved in it, even 50 years after this letter, as we learned, the bishop of Antioch came by and said, you guys, Paul, what Paul wrote about you is right So do the math, 20 years earlier from the writing of this letter to now, they are going after it 50 years after the writing of this letter, 70 years this community was known to be a gospel engine in Europe. Friends, that's the power of having something greater than yourself to gather around That's the power of having something bigger than your own lives to to build your lives upon, upon, to invest in, to partner together. They were partnering with Paul and the rest of the church for the glory of God and the good of his people in the proclamation of the gospel. Let me read to you. This wasn't his intention, but the point is so clear. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, right, in his, his typically insightful way. If you haven't read Lewis, man, you haven't lived. You need to read this guy. It's a bit lengthy, as you can see on the screen, so I don't expect you to read it. Let me read it out loud. He writes, lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed by each other. Friends, however, are side-by-side, absorbed by some common interests. Romantic love is necessarily between two only, but two, far from being the necessary number for friendship, is not even the best. And the reason for this is important. If of three friends, A, B, and C, he writes, A should die, then B loses not only A, but A's part in C, while C loses not only A, but A's part in B. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. Now he gives a a personal illustration. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Therefore, two friends always delight to be joined by a third or a fourth, if only the newcomer is qualified to become a real friend. They can then say, as the blessed souls say in Dante, here comes one who augments our loves, for, this, for in this love to divide is not to take away. Thus, the greater the common interest, the greater the friendships can become. So here's what Lewis is, in a sense, saying that friendships are not so much about each other as is in the case of lovers, but about an, they're about another object altogether. And more friends that share an interest in that object, the more wondrous the experience becomes because you don't get less of the object because you have to share it with more. You actually get more of the object because you are experiencing how they experience it as well. And he says, furthermore, the greater the object of your interest the greater the joy and the experience itself. Friends, this, this explains the dynamic of why people love fan clubs. This is, it explains why people love to join car clubs or, or any kind of meetup group that's on board games or movies or pop culture or anything. People love to experiencing other people about something. And friends, There is nothing greater to build a friendship around, to build a partnership around than the gospel, and there's no greater place to do that than in a local church. If you are not a regular part of a church, why not? Because everything Lewis said is true. If you are not part of a regular body of believers that's just being blown away of something bigger than your own life, you are missing out. Friends, don't just be a church observer, be a church member. Find a church, join a church, labor with that church for the long haul, and it doesn't have to be fancy, it doesn't have to be a cool church, doesn't have to be a trendy church, doesn't have to be a hip church. Just make sure it's a church that's founded, focused, and fueled by the gospel. That's the kind of church you want to have. Don't be an observer. Someone watching from the outside, watching other people enjoy it. Don't even be just a regular attender who dips in and out whenever it's convenient to you. Be a member. Be a partner. Lock arms with people. Make commitments. Take on responsibility. Be held accountable. My son might be smiling right now because that's what I tell him is the definition of manhood. That's what it is. That's a definition of manhood. That's a definition of a good church member. Take on responsibility. Make commitments. Be accountable. Be a member. Be a partner. Don't be an observer. Don't just be an attender. Be a partner in the most important message this planet will ever hear. The one message that can show a wealthy merchant woman what true riches are. The one message that can show a Roman centurion what true strength is about. The one message that can show a slave girl what real bondage and what real freedom is. The message of Jesus Christ, the gospel message. People, what are you partnering about and who are you partnering with? We're all doing that with our lives. We're all gathering around something. We're all being amazed by something. You cannot not do that. That's the way God made us. What are you partnering around, and who are you partnering with? Now, that question's I'm not throwing that out there to guilt you to quit your job and be a missionary, right? Okay, I'm not, I'm not trying to guilt you to stop pursuing personal ambition and pursue a life of obscure service. But maybe on the other hand, you should. Isn't part of the value of the question just that being asked? Have you asked, Lord, what is it that you have of me? How can I better partner with the most important thing that's going on right now? I know it's Super Bowl Sunday. We're all waiting to get home to get to the game, but that's not that important because there's going to be another one next year and another one the year after that, another one after that. But the gospel, there's no other gospel, friends. And this is the one thing that impacts eternity What are you partnered with? Ask the question. Because we know at least in the Philippians, it did demand more of at least one of them. His name was Epaphroditus, right? We know him. We were introduced to them. He became a messenger on their behalf to Paul. But for the most part, every one of the Philippians, their lives stayed the same. They just faithfully were godly witnesses to Christ in a a, 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 a perverse, decaying culture. And their lives did the same thing every day. Even though they were about the greatest thing of all, God had called them to rather mundane, ordinary things. But they were faithful to support Paul. And Paul said, look, you may not be able to be with me like Epaphroditus is. But your gift, your support of me, it's like you are with me in prison. He says, in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you're here with me but they weren't. All they did was support him. Do you realize that? But the way God sees it is, no, you're there supporting Paul. You are with him in the defense and confirmation proclamation of the gospel. Even though you might be in Philippi working your mill trade, but you're supporting this guy. Doesn't that change the way you think about giving on Sunday mornings? I hope it does. I hope you don't think that, 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 that your giving is somehow an obligation, or worse, yet, yeah, that's how you get God on your good side. I do hope you think about your giving on Sunday mornings. As great as it is to see so regular giving, I hope it's just not a, a cultivated Christian civility that the, the, the bucket shows up or the bag or whatever, and you automatically, Pavlov's dog, reflex, action. I hope it's not that. I hope you actually think about what you're doing. I actually hope you see it the way Paul sees it and you actually get stoked to give and contribute to the work. I hope that you actually get excited that you see what you're doing is fueling gospel partnerships. I hope that when that, that tray comes by or the plate that you recognize that is gospel partnership. I hope you realize that when Erica and, and Brett come back from Papua New Guinea, they're going to say, "Thank you, Christ Community Church." Yes, you shouldn't go out there. You couldn't go out there. You can't fly a helicopter or a plane. You don't know their language. You don't know how to minister to the Papua the new new what would you call the locals? Papua New Guinea, New Guineans, Papuans. You you know that that's not for you, but that's for me. But I couldn't be out there if it wasn't for you. I could not be out there flying people for medical care, in my helicopter, in the storms, bringing Bibles and care for the people if it wasn't for you. And there's gonna be people in eternity, Papuans, New Guineans, I'm not sure, they're gonna say, David Bonsangyu, I'm here because you were a partner in the gospel. They're gonna say, Mindy, I'm here, my family's here. We once worshipped a tree stump, now we worship the king because of you and Kevin. And we never met that side of eternity, but we're here now. Thank you. I hope that's how you think of your giving because that's what's going on when we pull the curtain of eternity back. Isn't that what the gospel does? It takes the values of this world and flips them upside down, and it makes us an odd, peculiar people in a world where people are fighting to get more. You are joyous to give more. How radical is the gospel in something so mundane that we do every week, but when we see it through the eyes of Scripture, we go, whoa, I'm going to get in on this. And as more and more of us are gathered around it, like with our friendships together, we see more and more aspects of it, and we get more and more joy of it, and we want more and more people to experience it. That's exactly what Paul was like Into the prayer. Look at verse 4. You know that? He says, I'm praying for you in all of my prayers. Well, now we're going to see exactly his prayer because that's what he shows us in verses 9 through 11. That's what we're going to look at next. So we looked at gospel growth seen in partnerships, right? Now we're seeing gospel growth seen in these prayers. And in just these three short verses 9, 10, 11, Paul mentions the purpose, the goal, and the source of this prayer. Right? So you can see on the screens behind me, that I've tried to make it very clear from the passage how the purpose, goal, and source come out. The purpose is in verse 9. Paul says he's praying for the Philippians that they would abound, not just grow, but abound in love. Now this, this word, this verb here shows up four times in Philippians. This is the first time. Shows up again in verse 26. Uh, then in chapter 4, verse 12, and verse 18. And every time Paul uses this verb for abound, it's translated somewhat differently like amply supplied or abounding. It's, it expresses excess and overflow like a river that's breaking through its banks. If any of you lived in that kind of environment, you know what that's like, and Paul is praying for that kind of love to abound towards God and towards one another. But now notice, the love that Paul's talking about is not a kind of not squishy, soft love, right? It's not Disney love, right? It is a love with knowledge and discernment. Notice I says, I'm praying that love would abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. Now, this, this is challenging for our culture because we have effectively redefined love, right? And, and notice, I'm, so love in our culture, I got, I got the scare quotes or the air quotes, whatever it is, it is, thanks to Disney, we think that's the highest supreme in virtue, right? Now, biblical love is, that's why i don't put it in air quotes, but the love that we so often hear about is not. It's like this one unassailable emotion that as long as it's love, none of us can critique, judge, exercise standard, or put any limitations on it, because after all, it's love. There are so many unloving things done in the name of love. If a woman, if a wife, loves another man, then it's okay for her to be divorced because she's no longer happy. If a man and a woman love each other, it's okay that they live together like they were married. There are so many things done in the name of love that is the exact opposite of what love actually is. As if the subjective experience of love, right, that, that Disney version was the final court of arbitration, As if love does not have an essence, a definition, a structure. The Bible does. Talk about it. As a matter of fact, read 1 John. Every time you read a passage on love, you just read a sentence, you're going to see the word sacrifice or give. It's an amazing uh, study right there. It has nothing to do with my sermon, but just check that out. If, if, If you just think about this, if you've ever seen true love, you know this to be true. Parent will limit who their child can play with for how long and doing what. A husband will limit all interactions with other women because of his love for his wife. Right. A son will limit his aging father's uh, ability to drive. These are not contrary to love. They are expressions of love. And so Paul says, may your love abound. He's talking about the subjective, overwhelming aspect that you feel with knowledge and discernment, the objective criteria of it. Love and truth always go together because in Paul's mind, love and knowledge, knowledge was always grounded in the revelation of God's character in the scriptures. And so love was always defined by that character. That's why love and truth always go together. Friends, we need to dispel the myth that you can be a love guy or a truth guy or a love girl or a truth girl. You've heard people say that even in the church. Ah, he's all truth, but I'm grace, or vice versa. You've heard those kinds of things. It's craziness. Love and truth always go together. You cannot have one without the other. Love that isn't true is not real love. Truth that is not loving is not true truth. They are both expressing the same reality. They just use different letters. And you say, well, then why don't we just have one word if it's both the same thing? Why do you have truth and why do you have love? What, what's the difference? Well, look at it this way. Um, truth is revealed, let me put it this way. okay, so here, let me frame it right. Truth is love that's revealed to the mind, whereas love is truth that's revealed in the heart. They always go together. Truth is love. It's just revealed in the mind. And love is truth. It's just revealed in the heart. They always go together because they are going towards a goal. Right? So Paul's purpose of praying was that this love, this subjective love, grounded by the objective reality of what love is, goes somewhere, and that's what we look at verse 10. He says, "...so that you may approve what is excellent." So he wants them to grow to love, but not in and of itself as if that were the end goal, but so that they can approve what is excellent. So Paul's praying for their subjective experience of love to grow within them so that they can exercise knowledge, discernment. They can know right from wrong. They can have the kind of practical wisdom that the Christian worldview brings to your life, kind of knowing what to do in certain situations right word, the right, right, right way to navigate these things because you love someone and you have truth. It, it is not a discernment between what's bad and good. That, that's easy. That doesn't even require dis- I mean, that's, just, that's not discerned. You don't need discernment for that. This is bad. This is good. What's the problem? What he's talking about is this thing that so often grips us is, well, this is good, but it, which is good and this is the best? Someone said, that the good is the enemy of the best. You ever heard that expression? What well, Paul wants us to know is that God has the best for you, and he wants you to be able to discern what may be good, but is not the best. He doesn't want us to settle. Again, our friend Lewis, this time in, in a different book, The Weight of Glory, he helps us out. Indeed, he writes, if we consider the, uh, l- listen to the way he explains this, amazing. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child, who wants to go on making mud piles in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Oh man, yes we are. And so we settle for partnerships and affections and loves that are shallow, narcissistic, and stunted. What Paul is saying that the Philippians grasp, and he wants us to grasp, is that Jesus, the gospel, is better. Have you ever thought about that? You you may have heard people think, maybe you've observed the thing that, well, Jesus is right. but you ever thought that Jesus is better? That's a whole different way to think about it. It's not that Jesus is just right. It's that Jesus is better. Better better than any of our current ambitions, desires, wants, or needs. Jesus is better than your popularity, your security, or your dreams. Jesus is better than your politics, your preferences, or your opinions. He really is better. Jonathan Edwards probably one of the sharpest minds America has ever produced. He was the president of Yale University, was talking to his students and he wanted his students to understand the difference between religion, which was really part of the tapestry of culture, and the truth of the gospel message. And so this is what he says to them. Here's what, what is his charge to the students. It depends, of course, how you answer this question to determine whether or not you understand the Christian message. The question being, is Jesus merely useful to you Or is Jesus truly beautiful to you? Wow. Here's why Edwards is so brilliant. I mean, you can probably pick it up from just this one statement. Edwards understood the the, the dynamics of the human heart. And he could see through the the superficial externalities that, that we often focus on. But he could see that there are so many people involved in religious observances. But they weren't really Christian. He says, so look, the religious person, the religious people, they use Christ. Christ is useful to them. They have a certain sense of morality, they want things a certain way, and Christ seems to fit that bill. They like the structure, they like the tradition, it works for them, so Christ is useful. The irreligious person on the other hand, Christ isn't useful for them, Christ is kind of useless but they're still gonna find something that's useful for them. It might be a different person or a different thing, but they're gonna find things that are useful to them. So here's the genius of what Edwards is saying. On the surface, religious people and irreligious people may look completely different, but in their hearts, they're driven by the same impulse. They're looking for something that's gonna work for them. The only difference is the religious person finds it in Jesus and those structures. The irreligious person finds it in someone else and those structures. But both of them are just using Jesus. Or excuse me, one of them is just using Jesus. The other one doesn't care about Jesus. But the driving heart motive is identical. What's going to work for my life? That's why Edwards is so brilliant. Here's the point. Jesus is better than... Jesus is better than both your religion, and Jesus is better than your irreligion. And that's what Edwards was getting at. The way you determine one from the other is some people just think he's useful. Other people find him inescapably, unavoidably beautiful, and Paul did. He said it in chapter 3 verse 8, the surpassing worth and value of Christ, and the Philippians did the same. And that's why they partnered around the gospel. Friends, is Jesus just useful to you? Or is he beautiful to you? I often find that irreligious people, they don't reject the gospel when they understand the gospel. What they're rejecting is the religion that's grown up around the gospel. And so we need to be careful, because we do tend to lean on that religion spectrum, that we're not just making Jesus useful and promoting him as useful, that Jesus is beautiful and Jesus is better. He's better than pursuing trite happiness that can be taken away here and there. He's better than whatever it is that you're pursuing. It's not just do this because he's right, it's because he's better. And so Paul, praying that their love would abound this way, the goal to discern the good from the best, and finally he gets to the source of everything we've talked to up to this point. It's in verse 11, notice the phrase, That comes through Jesus Christ. What made the partnership possible? What was the foundation, the focus, the fuel of their friendship? Who is the source of this amazing love? It's all the same person, Jesus Christ. Now, friends, I know know many of you are this way, but the reality is, if you have partnered in the gospel, if there's any spiritual growth in your life, it hasn't happened because you're particularly smart. I mean, you are, many of you are smart, but that's not why it's happening. It is because, like Lydia, one day your eyes were opened. Like the slave girl, you were set free. Like the centurion, you were shown mercy. Mercy. And it comes all through Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness, what he's talking about is that fruit that we studied in Galatians chapter 5, 22 to 23, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those, you're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. Not of your own doing. So if you're hearing this and, 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 and this is not going to change, you are not going to change by simply saying, okay, what that guy says makes sense. I'm going to try harder. It's not going to work. It, you're not going to change by simply saying, I'm going to change my ways. I'm going to just do better. I mean, that can be a helpful admission, but that's not going to get you very far because the true source of change is not found in you because if it was, you'd be different already. But if you're saying, yeah, I need to partner about things that matter, I need to think about things like the way the Bible thinks about them, I'm just gonna try harder the way that that changes is finding that it's in Christ because it comes through Christ, and the way that happens is you find him to be beautiful. In other words, you cannot partner in the gospel work without first being attracted to the person whom the gospel's about. You're just just not going to make it a value until you see him as the ultimate value that surpasses all other values. So it's not going to happen until you see Christ not just as useful to you, but beautiful to you. And the way you see him as beautiful is you see his love working for you. As you look upon the cross, we don't have a cross up there because we had nothing else to put in that spot. It's to be a, a daily, weekly reminder, this is the love of Christ shown to us. At what great cost he was put there. The songs we all sung should have prepped your heart for that. As we look upon that and we see his beauty, we then come to ask, why would you want to partner with anything or anyone else? Why would you want to give your affections, your energies, your time? to anything else other than this one man. That's why Paul was grateful for the growth of the gospel in Philippi. It's not because their numbers were great. I'm pretty sure they weren't very popular. There wasn't a very big church there. It's not because they had political clout. They didn't. They were a persecuted minority for three centuries up until the 4th century AD. It's not because they had cool concerts or t-shirts or clubs or anything of that stuff that so often makes up modern evangelicalism. They didn't have any of that stuff. It's because they partnered in the one thing that mattered because they saw the surpassing beauty of Christ because Jesus was beautiful to them and they made their lives about that one thing. Friends, that's, that's my prayer. Would you make that your prayer this week? Would you look at Philippians 1, 9 through 11, say that's how I'm going to pray for the people of Christ Community Church. That their love would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that they can approve what is excellent and be found blameless and pure on that day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that came not from me, not from my performance, but Jesus to the praise and glory of God. Yes, I know Aunt Martha's got her knee surgery, but that can wait. She's got two, right? Pray for Aunt Martha that her love would abound, that she would love God and his people with knowledge and discernment and look forward to the day of Christ. Can you pray that for us? Pray that for me? I need that. We need that. The churches need that. Would gospel growth be seen in what we partner our lives with and how we pray? Imagine if everyone that calls this church their home—it's about 400 of us now—would be praying that this week, what could be done? To the praise, as he ends this passage, to the glory and praise of God. Let's make that true. Let's pray. Oh, sorry, almost forgot—Communion Sunday. Ah, (laughs) well, sorry about that. Just, I'm excited about this passage and want to pray about it. It's Communion Sunday. Most of you have have been here on Communion Sunday, but if you haven't, let me just explain to you what we're going to do. We're actually going to celebrate some of what we just talked about, the solidarity of a partnership in the gospel. The bread representing the life of Christ. This is how we're sustained, brothers and sisters. We're not sustained by our 401ks, our jobs, the identity we get from being parents or whatever it is. We're sustained by Christ. The cup represents his death on our behalf. The cup is the death we should die but aren't because of the bread represents the life we should have lived but don't. But Jesus did it both for us, and that's what we're going to celebrate. The only thing we ask is that if you're not a Christian, if, and by that I mean if you've never realized you are in need of a Savior because your sin is made known to you, if, if that hasn't happened and you're not desperate to know Jesus, that's a good indicator that you're probably not a Christian. And so we just ask that you sit and watch something that we do as Christians. Christians have done this, and they do it to this day with their lives. And so it's a sacred thing that we do. So we ask that you just respect that. If you are a Christian, though, and you're visiting from another church, you're welcome here if you're welcome at the table at your church. Um, Let's bow our heads in prayer, and we'll have our servers come up to serve us. Father, we thank you for this day of being together, worshiping together. I am always aware, Lord, that how lucky we are that we gather and sing and we have this beautiful building and we have this freedom. When so many of our brothers and sisters gather under persecution and fear of death, and they they gather quietly, barely raising their voices to a whisper for fear of who's on the other side of the door, unfortunately, Lord, that has been our heritage. We only don't think that because of the last 300 years we've experienced such a blessing in this country. But Father, may we use these freedoms to the advantage of the gospel, that we would use our time, our energies, our resources, not for ourselves, but for the proclamation of the kingdom, for our lives, our time will end very shortly. We want to stand before you knowing that we partnered about the things that mattered. And so Father, as a means to that end, we will pray for one another as Paul prayed in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.